Psalm 23. Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these great words. Very familiar words. Father, even in our culture today, uh, they are still uh, quite familiar to many people. Father, we pray that, uh, Lord, casting away all familiarity, Father, that you would nevertheless bring us into the depths of these words this morning. Uh, Teach us uh, from these words, O Father. But, uh, Lord, we ask that you would do more than simply teach us, but, Father, that you would change us. Change us through these words, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Our text begins with one of the most famous verses of one of the most famous chapters in the Bible, doesn't it? The words, the Lord is my shepherd, I I shall not want. We hear these even today. I think there's still, as, as, as people become less and less familiar with the scriptures, I think the, these words are still very, very familiar to our culture. You know, I'm thinking right now, I, I wasn't thinking of her earlier in my preparation, but I couldn't help but to think of her now, uh, a youngster uh, that was part of our youth group a number of years ago, who would cry when she heard Psalm 23. And sometimes she would cry because it brought back memories of a funeral that was in her life, a very painful time. And Psalm 23 would bring that uh, memory back. Uh, So that's one of the reasons why this psalm is still so popular in our culture is it's it's read a lot at funerals. Uh, But our text begins with these, uh, these five words, the Lord is my Shepherd, And before we go any further this morning, I'd like to kind of camp out in this phrase. The Lord is my shepherd. There are three words here that we really need to take a look at before we go any further. Because the rest of the psalm really is largely occupied with developing that initial statement that's made in verse 1. Uh, So the first word that I have in mind here is the word Lord. You'll notice when you look at the text, notice that uh, Lord is in small capital letters. You have a large capital L and then small capital letters. And, you know, this is the translator's way of letting the reader know that the personal name of God is being translated uh, here. Uh, It's become to be known in some circles as the unspeakable name or the unpronounceable name, or the unspeakable uh, four letters, as some people know it as. 
uh, the, this particular name of God comes out of the Hebrew and into English with a, a Y, an H, a W, and an H. And that's where the unspeakable four letters comes from. You'll hear that described sometime. Now, to protect this name from, profan- from profanity, somewhere along the way, the Jews ceased to pronounce this name. It was the unspeakable name. Uh, the ineffable name is another word for it. Ineffable meaning it's too extreme, it's too great uh, to be expressed, to be uh, poured forth from the lips. And around this world, there are thousands of people who love the Lord very deeply. And one of the ways that they express that love is they will not pronounce this name. And I respect that very deeply. And I couple that with the, the, the truth that in our Western culture, there's really not very much that's sacred anymore, is there? Can you think of much that's sacred in this culture? We're flippant now about everything. And we desperately need challenged in this way. But all of this having been said, David is calling out to the Lord here in this verse. And he's not using the word Lord. He's using this personal name of God. And I want to point this out to you for a number of reasons. First, the word Lord is more of a title than a name, isn't it? And it's one thing to speak to someone by way of their title. For example, Governor Tomlin. Governor is a a title. Somewhere along the line, when he was a senator, I met uh, Mr. Tomlin. But I'm not on a... Uh, personal basis with him that I would call him Earl Ray. It would be inappropriate for me to say, hey Earl, hey, Earl Ray, how you doing? That wouldn't be appropriate. I would refer to him as Governor Tomlin. Well, David, David is calling God by name. And the translation in many ways veils the intimacy. I mean, the translators are trying not to do it. Because of that indication that you have, that capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. If you look at the beginning of the Bible, if you look in the notes that are at the beginning of the Bible, they'll explain themselves as to why they're doing that. But the translation in many ways veils this intimacy that David has. David does not call out to God by his title. David is calling out to the Lord by his personal name. And second, you've heard me say this many times, but it's been a while, the name that that uh, David is using here for God is the name that God gives to Moses at the burning bush. You remember uh, Moses is going through the desert and he sees this bush, it's on fire, uh, but it's not being consumed. And he goes to see uh, what this strange sight is. This is what God uses to bring Moses into his presence. And there Moses is given the assignment to go to Pharaoh and ask that his entire slave population be led free, that Pharaoh let his people go free. Now Moses is right to tremble at such an assignment. And what does Moses say? So, well, well, who can I tell them sent me? God says, tell them I am, who I am sent you. And in Exodus chapter 3 and verse 15, he says, tell them Yahweh sent you. 
And that's the name that God gives to Moses. And it's the name that God gives to us. It's used in the Bible to the tune of five to 6,000 times. And it is this personal name that David uses when he calls on God in Psalm 23. Secondly, or I'd say thirdly, and we're going to see that this is really vitally important, the name Yahweh means that God needs no one. It means that he is the self-sustaining one. He doesn't receive strength from anything or anyone else. He receives no counsel from anyone uh, or anything else. Uh, he is the one who uh, is making all of he's making all of these things happen. He is completely self-sustaining and he is completely unchanging. I hope this morning I am a little bit different than I was yesterday. Let me explain that. I hope that even if it's only an eighth of an inch, I'm a little further up the sanctification ladder today than I was yesterday. In other words, I hope that I've changed. I hope that my life has changed a little bit more towards Christ-likeness today than it was yesterday. But if I was perfect... I would not be able to change. There is no room for improvement. I would be exactly the same today as I was yesterday, and I'd be the same forevermore. And that's who God is. He's perfect. He's perfect. The fourth thing that we should remember about this name is it's often referred to as the covenant name. What does that mean? It's the name that God has expressed in the midst, in the context of promising to make us his people and promising to be our God and to dwell in our midst. You remember passages such as Leviticus 26, 12, where the Lord says, I will be your God and you shall be my people and I will dwell in your midst. And he makes good on that promise and coming in the person of Christ, doesn't he? And he literally dwells in our midst. And he's dwelling in our midst now by the way of the Holy Spirit, isn't he? It's the covenant name. Now the next word in our opening statement here is the word shepherd. Shepherd. Now sheep are the, they're the silliest and most foolish and helpless of all livestock. My grandfather had sheep. But, you know, we're, we're hardly shepherds. I mean, we don't, know anything about shepherding so much but I know I think Marvin I think you've had sheep over the years I think so uh, you know you, you yeah Tim's smiling he understands I mean uh, they're they're not the brightest of bunch are they uh, a shepherd implies sheep doesn't it and to be referred to as a sheep is no compliment is it no it's no compliment now I'm going to sheep I mean require constant care you can't you can't leave them alone uh, for any period of time. I remember a Bible study somewhere a number of years ago bringing this point up, and there was someone in the Bible study that spoke up. And I said, well, I think I asked the question, what would happen if you left some sheep unattended for a long period of time? And someone who knew what I was talking about spoke up. Uh, she was a quiet person. Uh, 
But she spoke up loudly and said, that wouldn't be good. Um, it wouldn't be good because they'll wander into all kinds of danger. They simply can't be left alone for any length of time. And that's how we are described as sheep. We can't be left alone by the Lord for any length of time. We need constant care for the duration of our entire lives. Sometimes you'll talk with people who, who have grown up in the church. They, they went to Sunday school, for instance, when they were children. And then when they reached uh, teenage years or maybe when they reached college, they quit going to school. And they'll, they'll speak about, well, church, you know, I kind of graduated from church. No, you didn't. Sheep don't graduate from needing a shepherd. You didn't graduate from anything. You went astray. We don't graduate from being sheep. We need this constant care. I'm going to say more about this as we go. The next word is my. The word is my. This word my has a lot of force in this verse. Uh, The Lord is my shepherd. It it has an extraordinary amount of force in this verse. I, I think I can demonstrate that by by restating the verse. Let's suppose we said the Lord is a shepherd. I shall not want. Would that be a true statement? The Lord is, a, is the Lord a shepherd? A verse teaches us that he is. Are there other shepherds? Is he the only shepherd? Well, there are earthly shepherds, are there not? Is the Lord a shepherd? Of course he's a shepherd. But listen to that, listen to that statement. The Lord is a shepherd, I shall not want. It's empty of force, isn't it? How about if we add a qualifier before shepherd? If we say the Lord is a great shepherd, I shall not want. That's a pretty strong sentence, isn't it? We could say, listen, the Lord is a great shepherd. I shall not want. It's a true statement. It's got some force to it. But it's not as strong as the verse we have, is it? The Lord is is my shepherd I shall not want. That brings it down off the ladder of abstraction and puts it right into our hearts, doesn't it? The Lord is my shepherd. The healing comes in this word, my. He's mine. The Lord is my shepherd. Because he is my shepherd, I shall not want. The whole world knows him as Lord. The whole world knows him as God. David here not only knows him in this personal way, but he knows him as his personal shepherd, doesn't he? Now, David's going to flesh out this great statement beginning with the end of verse 1. We have these words, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Herein lies the answer for the massive epidemic of anxiety faced by our culture. I mean, what is life? Life is a series of situations that we cannot control. We can't raise the temperature out there a single degree if we want to. Storms come and all we can do is take shelter. We can't do anything about them. And oftentimes life is filled with more than one of these situations at a given time. 
Now, if you're going to try to control all of these situations yourself, or you're going to try to lean in someone else other than God to control these situations, you're going to be anxious. I mean, you're actually right to be anxious. If you're not anxious, you're completely out of touch with reality. If you have any kind of touch with reality at all, you're going to be anxious. Aren't you? You simply can't control these situations. I think right now would be a good time as any to restate a connection that I made last week. I connected Psalm 23. I didn't force this a lot because we were in Ezekiel and Jeremiah and I was making connections between Ezekiel and Jeremiah and John 10. Where Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they promised that a shepherd is to come and God makes this promise. He says, I will shepherd my sheep. And then when we, we went to John 10 and Jesus, there Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. He is the shepherd. God is making good on this promise that he made in Ezekiel, he made in Jeremiah. He's making good on that promise by coming in the person of Jesus Christ. And he is the good shepherd. But Jesus also makes another connection there when he says, I am the good shepherd. Some of you recognize that as one of the great I am sayings of John. I am the good shepherd. What's he making a reference to there? Go back to Gen uh, Exodus 3, to the burning bush. Lord, who, who can I say sent me, says Moses. Tell him I am sent you. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. With that in mind, we're not going to flip around like we did last week, but I do want... I think it would be, rather than listen to me read all of these verses, I think it would be helpful if you stuck your bulletin in Psalm 23 and you turned to Matthew 6. I think it would be helpful if you read along with me. I want to postulate these thoughts with Jesus' words in Matthew 6. And I want to do this because, you know, Luther was famous for saying, if you don't, if you're not applying the gospel to the issues of the day, you're not preaching the gospel at all. And if anxiety isn't an issue today, I don't know what is. But in Matthew chapter 6, starting with verse 25, it's page 811 if you're using the church's Bible. I just want you to think for a few moments. With everything that's been said, let that rest in the background as we look at Jesus' words here in Matthew 6, 25. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O oh, you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all of these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. 
Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. As we think about those words, think about Psalm 23 and verse 1 again. Yahweh is my shepherd. Let's make a connection. Jesus is my shepherd. Does anybody know what the name Jesus means? Jesus, I mean, around the world, people don't say Jesus. That's something we do in the United States primarily. Around the world, they say Jesus. I studied with folks from Africa and China and Korea and a number of different places at seminary. And they call him Jesus. That's, the, that's his Greek name, Jesus. And Jesus is the Hebrew name Yeshua brought into Greek. Yeshua. Jesus. What is Yeshua? Yeshua is brought into English under the name Joshua. What does Yeshua mean? It literally means Jehovah saves. Yahweh saves. The New Testament saints can read Psalm 23 and verse 1 and say, Jesus is my shepherd. I shall not want. Amen. Now let's move on to verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Last week I made a, a casual reference to this verse, commenting that the shepherd feeds us. And provides us with a drink. That was a casual reference to this verse. There's a lot more going on in this verse than food or drink. Uh, and to, to get this, we need to, we need to know a little bit more about sheep. And there's a pastor and writer named Philip Keller. Don't confuse him with Tim Keller. His name is Philip Keller. And he, commenting on this verse, writes, quote, Sheep do not lie down easily. Uh, Marvin probably knows that. Tim probably knows that. Sheep don't lie down very easily. In fact, it's almost po impossible for them to be made to lie down unless four requirements are met. Owing to their timidity, they refuse to lie down unless they are free of all fear. Because of the social behavior within a flock, sheep will not lie down unless they are free from friction with others of their kind. If tormented by flies or parasites, sheep will not lie down. Only when free of these pests can they relax. Lastly, sheep will not lie down as long as they feel in need of finding food. They must be free from hunger. End of quote. I think this goes a long way in actually opening up the role of the shepherd, doesn't it? Right, knowing all of this information, would anybody want to be a shepherd? This is high maintenance, isn't it? According to Mr. Keller, Pastor Keller, the sheep won't lie down if they're afraid, if they're anxious, if they're hungry or tormented by pests. The, the sheep, you know, the shepherd must keep them calm. He must offer them security, provide them with food and offer them relief from these pests, some of which would be dangerous to their health. 
Now, with all of this said, let's reread verse 2. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. We can see this is verses also about rest. And I think right now, I don't know if you're, if you're like me right now, I wanna, especially when I was going over this uh, earlier this week, I couldn't help but to think of Jesus' words in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, that famous passage where he says, Come to me, all you who are, who, who are heavy burdened, and I will give you what? I'll give you rest. It's the role of the shepherd, isn't it? To give rest. In fact, apart from Christ, there is no rest. There can be no rest. I don't want to just make a statement like that and not show you why I'm making a statement like that. In Deuteronomy 28, as we have some passages we've looked at many times in our study of Daniel. You'll recall that in Deuteronomy 28, uh, that's a passage where Moses is pronouncing covenant curses. He pronounces covenant blessings to the people of Israel. If they keep covenant, there's all these blessings. If they don't keep covenant, then there's a series of curses. And one of the curses in verses 64 and 65 read this way. And the Lord will scatter you among all peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there you shall serve other gods of wood and stone, which neither you nor your fathers have known. And among these nations, you shall find no respite. And listen to this. And there shall be no resting place. Revelation 14.11 offers the same thought. Speaking of all those who refuse to bow their knees to Christ, they will find no rest. There, there can't be any rest apart from Christ. Only in Christ can we rest. There can't be any part. There can't be any rest because only in Christ is the wrath taken away. But the beginning of verse 3 adds another color. Let's, let's put this all, start putting this all together. Verses 1 and 2 with the opening phrase in verse 3. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He restores my soul. I don't know if there are any Kleenexes in here. I got a terrible allergy in this room for some reason. I don't know why. I get in this room and my allergies go berserk. He restores my soul is the opening phrase of verse 3. One scholar puts all of this beautifully. The stress in these verses is not so much on eating in the grassy pastures or on drinking the waters of rest, but on stretching out in the grass when satisfied. Thank you so much. On stretching out in the grass when satisfied on the peaceful surroundings of the quiet waters, and so on renewing vitality. Let me read that again. The stress in these verses is not so much on eating in the grassy pastures or on drinking the waters of rest, but on stretching out in, in the grass when satisfied on the peaceful surroundings of the quiet waters and on so renewing vitality. So we see the imagery of food Thanks. Well, we got Kleenexes coming from everywhere. Asking you shall receive. Thank you. So we see that the, the, the idea of food and drink falls short of fully explaining this. And even the idea of rest falls short of fully explaining this. In fact, the imagery, uh, the imagery here is found in the opening phrase of verse 3 in the words, He restores my soul. 
He restores my soul. The imagery here is on the complete restoration of the soul. Sure, there's food involved. They have eaten it and got their fill. Sure, there's drink involved. The thirst has been quenched. Yes, there's rest involved. They're relaxing. They're stretching out. They're able to lie down. But there's more than that. There's complete restoration of the soul taking place here. Do you see that? In Christ Jesus, we have complete restoration of the soul. Do we not? If you know Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. Let's... uh, Look at the other half of verse 3 in the beginning of verse 4. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I'm putting these verses together like this, these phrases together like this, because I want to strengthen a point that Derek Kidner once pointed out. He said the valley of the shadow of death is indeed one, one of the paths of righteousness that the shepherd leads us into. Did you get that? I'll say it again until I'm confident that everybody's got it because I'm looking at some of your faces. The valley of the shadow of death is one of the paths of righteousness that the shepherd sometimes leads us into. It really runs contrary to what we're accustomed to thinking, isn't it? I mean, we think, well, the shepherd comes and he leads us out of the danger. And that's true. It's 100% true. But there are times when the shepherd leads us right smack dab through the danger to where we can see it on all sides. Walk with Jesus for a little while and you'll discover that to be the case. Our friend uh, Philip Keller, he illustrates this so clearly. He writes, quote, the valleys are places of rich pasture and much water. Sounds good, right? Wholesome food. The valleys are places of rich pasture and much water, but they are also places of danger. Wild animals lurk in the broken canyon walls. Sudden storms may sweep along the valley floors. There may be floods since the sun does not shine into the valley very well. There really are shadows which at any moment may become shadows of death. End of quote. When Christ saves us, he literally pulls us out of the kingdom of darkness and he transfers us into the kingdom of light. Colossians 1.13 says that the Father has delivered us from the domain of darkness, transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. Now once we are transferred, once we are delivered, we become objects of persecution. It's not safe following Jesus. That's why Jesus says count the costs. Over and over again, he says, count the cost. It's not safe following Jesus, is it, in this fallen world? Count the costs. But this sets us up to really see verse 4 here. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Even though Christ may lead us into the dangerous valley, the psalmist's conviction is, I will fear no evil. Why? Answer, because the shepherd is with him. 
Otherwise, he would have every reason to be completely terrified. But it's because the shepherd is with him. He will fear no evil. He says that his rod and staff are a comfort to him. In Charles Spurgeon's massive work on the Psalms, titled The Treasury of David, I don't know if anybody has those on your bookshelf. There are three volumes, generally speaking, huge. There's an abridged volume, uh, but if you have the, the whole thing, it's uh, somebody, I think, I read somewhere, something like two million words in length. In this massive volume, Spurgeon shares a testimony of a man who observed some shepherds in the northern part of the Holy Land in the 19th century. Listen to how he describes them. He describes them, quote, the shepherds themselves had none of that peaceful and placid aspect which is generally associated with pastoral life and habits. What, what's that sentence mean? Well, for many of us, we've grown up with the little pictures, you know, the children's pictures, you know, the, you know, the shepherd, and he's got the, the shepherd's, you know, he's got the, the, the staff, and he's smiling, and the sheep are all smiling, and, the, and the, the sky is blue, you know, and there's just a couple clouds, and the sun is out, and everything is just hokey-dokey, you know. Uh, that's, uh, that's the imagery that many of us, when we think of shepherds, that's what we, is what we think of. Well, um, <laughs> here's a description. He says they look like warriors marching to the battlefield, a long gun slung from the shoulder, a dagger and heavy pistols in the belt, a light battle axe or iron-headed club in the hand. Such were the equipment, and their fierce flashing eyes and scowling countenances showed but too plainly that they were prepared to use their weapons at any moment. End of quote. Puts a new spin on things, I think. Shepherding is dangerous work here on earth. It's dangerous work here on earth. How much more dangerous is shepherding in the heavenly places? Down deep in the valley, there are scary enemies that are too much for us. They could overtake us. They could easily conquer us. They could make a mess out of us if we were left to our own. How much more in the heavenly places? And when we look at those enemies, immediately take your eyes off those enemies and look to Jesus because he is mightier than those enemies. He's mightier than every single one of those enemies. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Christ is with me. That's why. Christ is with me. And that sets us up for verse 5. Christ can prepare a table for you in the presence of your enemies. He can prepare a table for you in the very presence of your enemies. This is powerful imagery. The sheep are so secure in the midst of these terrifying dangers that they can dine safely in front of them. And we have an illustration of this right here. This morning we come to the Lord's table. And I want to remind you, where's this table placed? Right here in this wicked valley. You don't think this valley is wicked? This is one wicked valley. And there's the table. And our cup overflows, doesn't it? Our cup overflows. 
we are going to dine right in the very presence of powerful spiritual forces of darkness. Amen? The question before us this morning is, is Christ your shepherd? Is Christ your shepherd? The answer is no. Why not? If the answer is yes, look at verse 6. Don't only look at it, but take it as a promise. Verse 6 is a promise. For those who are in Christ Jesus, surely goodness and mercy shall follow you all the days of your life. And you shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. If you're in Christ Jesus, take that as a promise. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great psalm, Father. Well, there's so much to these familiar words, Father, as we look. So much to feed on, so much to drink from, Father. Father, we, we respond by thanking you and we respond by praising you. In Jesus' precious name, amen and amen.